until you spend some time exploring the Great Lakes, you really can't understand just how big they are. In 1998, I first started reporting on Great Lakes issues. I've traveled all eight states and two provinces of the region, and I've only seen a fraction of the coastline. These freshwater seas are amazing. They're also a really complex ecosystem that's threatened by invasive species. Big reductions in some of our diatom species since the invasion of the mussels. That points to, you know, less food for fish. But climate change... That is changing the relationship that human beings are having with the Great Lakes that they love. By pollution. 100,000 potential lifetime cancer cases could be related to drinking water contaminants. Coming up after the news, we'll look at how the Great Lakes are in peril. Remember back in grade school when you first learned about the food web? In the Great Lakes, it all starts with microscopic plant life. Each winter and early spring, big storms stir up nutrients in the sediment. Those nutrients kickstart a new cycle of life in the lakes. Different types of algae, plankton, grow. That becomes food for aquatic organisms. Annie Schofield is a life scientist at the EPA's Great Lakes National Program office in Chicago. But when we talked to her, she wasn't in Chicago. Right now, I'm out on the RV Lake Guardian, uh, which is our research vessel that does these spring and summer surveys, as well as a lot of other surveys over the course of the year. The Lake Guardian has been visiting the Great Lakes, taking samples and measurements since the 1980s. Basically, we're just trying to understand what is going on in the lakes and how that's going to affect the rest of the food web, as well as water quality uh, that's really important as a drinking water source for people. One thing she and other scientists are finding is changes in diatom populations. Diatoms are phytoplankton, microscopic algae. Tiny aquatic animals and some just-hatched fish like to eat diatoms. So this is a good place to start the story of what's happening in the Great Lakes, because here, at the base of the food web, diatoms are feeling the pressure from all three of the threats we're talking about this hour. They're being affected by pollution, by climate change, and by invasive species. Beth Henchy is Schofield supervisor back in Chicago. Diatoms are preferred prey for, for fish, as, and the zebra mussels and the quagga mussels like to eat them as well. So we've seen big reductions in um, some of our diatom species, you know, since the invasion of the mussels. That points to, you know, less food for fish. Zebra and quagga mussels are not native to the Great Lakes. They're from Eastern Europe. How did they get here? By ship. Big, ocean-going cargo ships get to the lakes through the St. Lawrence Seaway. Along their routes, they pump in and discharge water to help balance the vessels as they load and unload. With that water comes things such as those zebra and quagga mussels. When they were discharged into Great Lakes harbors, they found a rich feeding ground. They consumed the plankton, and the populations of the mussels exploded. Soon, there were trillions of quagga mussels covering the bottoms of Lake Ontario, Erie, Huron, and Michigan. They've filtered out a lot of the diatoms and other plankton, which are the base of the food web. Back in 2003, Tom Nalepa was studying a tiny shrimp-like creature called Diapariah while on board that same ship, the Lake Guardian. At the time, Nalepa was a biologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Great Lakes Environmental Research Lab. And what we're seeing is a dramatic drop in populations. And not only drops, but there's large areas that no longer have diapariah. This is, this is a real concern because diapariah is a very important fish food. At one point, researchers would find 10,000 diapariah in a square yard of sediment, even with all kinds of fish eating it. 
just about every type of species found in the Great Lakes will feed on diapari at some stage in its life cycle. It's a very good, nutritious food source for fish. Today, it's believed the diapariah might have all but disappeared. Why? Those invasive mussels have gobbled up much of the plankton that diapariah eat. Of the 180 invasive plants and animal species that plague the Great Lakes region, about a third of them hitchhiked in the ballast tanks of ships. For decades, biologists and environmental groups were concerned that not enough was being done to stop the invasion of these alien species. The governments of the U.S. and Canada seemed to just chalk it up to the price of free trade. It wasn't until a series of lawsuits in the 1990s that basically said that invasive species that are discharged into freshwater are essentially a biological pollutant, and therefore they should be regulated under the Clean Water Act. That's Mark Smith with the National Wildlife Federation. A federal court decided the EPA needed stronger rules and needed to enforce them. The agency did crack down on those international ships. They're called salties because they travel the ocean. But they left a huge loophole. The rules exempted the cargo ships that only travel within the Great Lakes. They're called Lakers. Lakers did not introduce them. But they certainly moved them, and there's science to back that up. The problem was, Lakers could pick up an invasive that might be in just one area of one lake and then carry it to a port in a different lake and spread the problem there. There's been many studies that suggest that Lakers are almost the biggest vector to carry invasive species from lake to lake. Congress took action in 2018 requiring better rules to deal with the invasives in all ballast water. But the EPA enacted rules under the Trump administration that, once again, exempted Lakers. EPA had a number of reasons, including that the cost of the technologies that are available, that the technologies take up too much room on the ships, basically just making the point that it would cost too much to retrofit these vessels. That's Molly Flanagan with the Alliance for the Great Lakes speaking last year. She called the move short-sighted. Flanagan says the cost of damage from aquatic invasive species far outweighs the cost of putting those technologies on the Lakers. Then this year, Canada changed its rules to require Lakers visiting its ports to treat ballast water to kill invasive species. The government there said it might be expensive, but doing nothing would cost more. Flanagan says Canada is setting the proper example. I think Canada is really looking at what is needed in order to protect the Great Lakes. And I hope that EPA is going to follow suit. Cargo ships are not the only way invasive species get into the Great Lakes. The shipping canals have also opened a pathway to harmful invaders. There are two main spots where this has been a problem. On the east side of the basin, where canals connect the lakes to the Atlantic seaboard, and near Chicago, where a canal connects Lake Michigan to the Mississippi River system. There's one little fish that made its way into the Great Lakes by ships and then threatened to escape through the Chicago Canal into the Mississippi. This little fish voraciously eats native fish eggs, so it was alarming. National Public Radio wanted this story. Here's Bob Edwards in 1999. The round goby is threatening to spread even farther into the Mississippi River system. Lester Graham of the Great Lakes Radio Consortium reports the field of battle is a small waterway near Chicago. The round goby is not a native of the Great Lakes, yet since its introduction to the region just nine years ago, wildlife officials say the aggressive little fish has already spread throughout the five lakes. 
Something needed to stop the round goby from spreading to the Mississippi River system. The Army Corps of Engineers came up with a plan. It would install an electric barrier in the canal connecting Lake Michigan to the Mississippi. David Handwork was the engineer on the project. We're hoping to get something in the 90% range with just a one array of electric fields. If that's the case, we'll probably go in and put in a second array located further downstream to increase the overall effectiveness. It didn't work. The round goby still invaded the Mississippi River system. At about the same time, there was growing concern about invasive fish making their way north up the Mississippi and into Lake Michigan. And this story is a good example of the ripple effects of invasive species. Catfish farmers in the southern U.S. had a problem. A parasite that lived in snails was killing their fish. So they brought in another fish, the black carp to eat the snails and wipe out the parasite. Since the 1960s, the federal government and state agencies encouraged fish farmers to use different kinds of foreign carp to keep their ponds free of algae and plankton and weeds in the water. Wildlife officials in some of the other states along the Mississippi River were concerned that if these black carp ever escaped, they would destroy native mussel populations in the river system. The state of Mississippi dismissed those concerns. Jimmy Avery was a researcher with the National Warm Water Aquaculture Center at Mississippi State University at the time. The Mississippi Department of Agriculture and Commerce uh, has decided that through the permit process, we can minimize this through uh, we'll know where it, they'll know where every black carp is located. They'll know what every kind of system they've been put in, and they feel like those regulations have been put in place are strong enough to prevent that. Those regulations did not prevent black carp from escaping. So black carp joined the bighead carp, the grass carp, and the silver carp as escapees from southern fish farms and ponds. Those four species of fish multiplied rapidly in the rivers. And that electric barrier built to keep the round goby out of the Mississippi, the one that didn't work, the Army Corps of Engineers rebranded it as a carp barrier that would protect the Great Lakes from the fish. The silver carp got the most attention because of videos like this one from the TV show Indiana Outdoor Adventure, which showed fish jumping out of the river like crazy when a boat passed by. People were actually getting hit by the fish. Collectively, those invasive carp became, and still are, the poster child of alien invasive species threats to the Great Lakes. There's been so much public pressure to stop the carp that a second barrier in that canal was built. Then a third. This year, Michigan contributed $8 million to design yet another invasive carp barrier. The total cost of this one is expected to be around $800 million. It probably won't do any good. The grass carp found another way into the Great Lakes. It's spawning in the Maumee and Sandusky Rivers in Ohio, tributaries of Lake Erie. There are concerns about carp in other tributaries in Minnesota. And that Chicago area canal is still a threat even with invasive carp barriers in place. Environmentalists are most worried that the silver carp and bighead carp will get into the Great Lakes and gobble up the plankton that make up the base of the food web. It's not like there's a lot of plankton left in the Great Lakes. You might have noticed I've not been calling them Asian carp, a term that's commonly used. Earlier this year, my colleague Rachel Ishikawa asked if I thought we should be using that term for these harmful invaders. Wasn't it a lot like calling COVID-19 the Chinese flu? She explained it a little further to me and April Bear on the program stateside. You know, for using a place of origin to describe an invasive species, I think it does have the potential to spur 
like some kind of bias against that specific place. Just looking at this past year, it's been made abundantly clear that the words that we use really do matter and have a significant social impact. This past year, we've seen hate crimes against Asian American folks spike. And it's really hard not to attribute that to some of the widespread xenophobic and anti-Asian rhetoric that's used around talking about the coronavirus. So we're no longer using that term. Instead, they're just invasive carp. Coming up in 20 minutes, we'll look at how climate change is affecting not just the Great Lakes, but inland lakes and rivers, and it just keeps getting worse. And in a moment, we'll hear about pollution affecting the Great Lakes, the water we drink, and maybe even your beer. You're listening to Great Lakes in Peril from the Environment Report. This is Great Lakes in Peril, Invasives, Pollution, and Climate Change. I'm Lester Graham. We're going to talk about pollution, how we contribute to the problem, and how the problem in turn affects us all. Let's start with one of the big issues, pollution from farmland. In the 1960s, Lake Erie was declared dead. Mostly, that was because of phosphorus pollution from farms that spread too much manure on their fields for fertilizer. That, once again, is a huge problem. Government agencies keep track of the phosphorus level in the western basin of Lake Erie. That's because the nutrient feeds cyanobacteria. That's a harmful algal bloom which can harbor a toxin that can make humans and animals sick. In 2014, Toledo, Ohio shut down its drinking water system because cyanobacteria blooms were so widespread. This year, researchers forecast a smaller-than-usual harmful algal bloom on western Lake Erie. Rick Stumpf is a scientist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He says that does not mean the phosphorus problem is getting any better. This is resulting from a drier spring. This is from low flow, not a reduction in the actual concentration of nutrients going into the water. In other words, the phosphorus is being concentrated in the rivers and their sediment. When more rains come, it'll be flushed to the lake. Until farmers, politicians, and regulators actually do something substantially different, harmful algal blooms will continue to be a problem. There's another persistent problem that we're not tackling well enough. Plastics. Did you know 22 million pounds of plastic trash enters the Great Lakes from the U.S. and Canada each year. That's according to a study from the Rochester Institute of Technology. On a windy, chilly day early this spring, I joined a small group of volunteers who were picking up trash along an area of Lake Michigan. Lynn Knopf with the Duck Creek Watershed Assembly led the group. She told me the bulk of the trash is plastic and much of it is deteriorating. You just, it just crumbles into little, little tiny pieces, and eventually it just becomes almost impossible to pick up. The cleanup was part of the Alliance for the Great Lakes Adopt-A-Beach program, which organizes these events across the Great Lakes. And consistently, we see that about 85% of the litter picked up at Adopt-A-Beach cleanups is made up of plastic. That's Jennifer Caddick. She's the spokesperson for the Alliance. 
On just this one Lake Michigan beach, I saw thousands of pieces of plastic ranging from shopping bags to drinking straws, and there were lots of unidentifiable bits of plastic in the water and on the shore. We know that plastic pollution never goes away, right? It just breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces. Those bits of plastic can hurt wildlife. Sarah Lowe is with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Marine Debris Program. Uh, There's definitely a lot of wildlife rescue centers that repeatedly get calls for wildlife that may be entangled in fishing line or plastic rings. But for the small stuff, the microplastic debris, the primary focus there has been on the wildlife eating the microplastic debris. And we're ingesting it, too. Mary Kasuth is a research student at the University of Minnesota's School of Public Health and Environmental Sciences. A few years ago, she sampled tap water in several cities in the Great Lakes region. She also looked at beer. She found plastic fibers in both the water and the beer. But something was off, because in some cases she found greater amounts of microfibers in the Great Lakes beer than the water used to make it. And found no correlation between the amount that was in the tap water and the amount that was in the beer from the same cities. What Kasuth didn't realize at the time is that a lot of grain used by brewers comes in bags made of woven threads of polypropylene, a strong plastic. I talked with Dan Rogers at Griffin Claw's Brewery in Rochester Hills. He's the head brewmaster there, and he'd not heard about plastic in water or beer. I asked him if it made any sense to suspect the bags used to ship the grain. Yes, it does. A lot of these uh, malts are put in woven bags. It's like a fabric almost. And some of the bags we have, they're paper, but on the inside there's a plastic liner for like a moisture barrier. So I would say all this grain touches plastic. He said he was going to start investigating to see what he could or should be doing at his brew house. As for tap water, treatment plants are not yet set up to filter out all those microscopic threads of plastic, especially the kinds that come from clothes like synthetic fleece jackets. The government is offering grants to study the plastics pollution problem in the Great Lakes, but regulators are doing less about a problem that's even more complex. Some industrial byproducts, agricultural chemicals, and even pharmaceuticals that pass through our bodies end up in our streams and lakes, and together they create a soup of chemicals. Water treatment plants do a good job of killing the viruses and bacteria that make people sick, but dealing with chemicals is more difficult for regulators. Only recently, a group of chemicals known as per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances were discovered in drinking water, but the toxic chemicals, PFAS, had been there for decades. More than likely, there are other chemicals we've not yet detected. And chemicals in water can mix. That's where dealing with pollutants really falls short. The way that chemicals in general are evaluated is based upon a single chemical. And that just isn't reality. We're all exposed to multiple chemicals all of the time. That's Linda Birnbaum. She's the former director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, as well as the National Toxicology Program. She says we don't have the research facilities we need to study what these mixtures of chemicals do to human health. But she says the rise of some health problems does correlate with the proliferation of chemicals in the environment. We have an increase in autism spectrum disorder. We have an increase in ADHD. We have an increase in autoimmunity. You know, there's increases, say, in certain kinds of cancer, like pancreatic cancer. 
The Environmental Working Group did a peer-reviewed study that looked at chemical levels in drinking water. Researchers wanted to know whether chemical combinations could lead to health problems, even if the individual chemical levels were below government limits. Sydney Evans was one of the authors of that study. Even at legal limits, we're seeing, you know, 100,000 potential lifetime cancer cases could be related to drinking water contaminants as they are in the water today. Evans says very little is being done to tackle all the possible combinations of chemicals in any meaningful way. And there's a huge cost of inaction. It's just hidden, so most people can't see it up front. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and water treatment plant operators do participate in a program called the Unregulated Contaminant Monitoring Rule. It looks at a list of chemicals every five years to see if they're in drinking water and, if so, how prevalent they are. But of the tens of thousands of possible individual chemicals, they look at no more than 30 chemicals each five-year period. And they don't look at combinations of chemicals that are often known to be in drinking water. Jamie Fleming manages the Michigan City of Wyoming's water purification plant lab. She says the goal is to keep individual chemicals out of the water to begin with so they don't become part of that chemical soup. I think a lot of times we look at drinking water, wastewater, other pieces of the environmental puzzle as individual pieces. They are really interrelated. And the best way to protect your drinking water is to prevent something from entering it in the first place. Linda Birnbaum says the current process of looking at one chemical at a time is slow and the rules protect companies until their chemicals are proven to be a significant risk. I think that the only way we can reduce exposure is we need better regulation. And in some cases, that may mean that we need new laws. But so far, there's not been the political will to take on what is a massive problem. Other things seem more pressing, like the possibility of an oil spill in the Great Lakes. In recent years, the public's attention has been fixed on one particular spot where oil pipelines cross a Great Lakes waterway, Line 5. The Canadian pipeline company Enbridge Energy owns Line 5. It carries natural gas liquids and light crude oil from western Canada and uses Michigan as a shortcut to get to Sarnia, Ontario. That shortcut crosses the Straits of Mackinac, the body of water connecting Lakes Michigan and Huron. At that point, Line 5 goes underwater. It splits into two pipelines that cross four miles of lake bottom. Enbridge has been a concern ever since 2010. That's when another one of its pipelines spilled nearly a million gallons of crude oil into the Kalamazoo River. Many people worry a spill in the Straits could be far worse. Doug Craven is the Natural Resources Director for the Little Traverse Bay Bands of Ottawa Indians. There's potential for there to be a rupture, and that would be catastrophic to our way of life, um, our use of the water, our commercial subsistence fishing, um, but also the the greater non-tribal community as well. Back last November, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer put Enbridge Energy on notice. She ordered Line 5 to shut down by May 12th of this year. That deadline came and went, and the pipeline is still operating. My colleague at Bridge, Michigan, Kelly House, writes for the Environment Watch there. She and I have been watching what's happening. So, Kelly, why does Governor Whitmer believe that she has the authority to shut down a commercial oil pipeline? Under this concept called the Public Trust Doctrine, the state of Michigan holds the lands at the bottom of the straits in trust for the people. And the state has an obligation to protect public uses like fishing and swimming. The Department of Natural Resources says Michigan never should have let Enbridge build the pipelines in the Straits back in 1953. 
And that's because it violates the public trust by putting the Great Lakes at risk of pollution from an oil spill. The state's had nearly 70 years to make that argument. Why now? The Enbridge oil spill in the Kalamazoo River 10 years ago. Uh It was one of the worst inland oil spills in U.S. history, and it created a lot of mistrust of Enbridge, which led people to start becoming aware of this old pipeline in the Straits that is also owned by the same company. On top of that, Enbridge was slow to reveal damage to the pipeline after an anchor struck it in 2018 and after another vessel damaged the supports for the pipeline last year. Okay, so that's the reasoning the governor's using, but Enbridge says the governor doesn't have that kind of power. That's what Enbridge spokesperson Ryan Duffy said just before the May 12th deadline. We will not stop operating the pipeline unless we're ordered by a court or our regulator, which we think is highly unlikely. Enbridge challenged the governor's order in federal court and argues that Governor Whitmer's decision to revoke the easement is not enough on its own. There's a group of environmentalists, Native American groups, and businesses called Oil and Water Don't Mix. They want Line 5 shut down, like, yesterday. Well, actually, back on May 12th, Governor Whitmer's shutdown deadline. David Holtz is communications director for the group. There needs to be consequences because it just can't be that Enbridge can ignore a lawful order and put the Great Lakes and our economy at risk. So the environmentalists want it shut down. Tribal nations want Line 5 shut down. A fair number of businesses in the state are in favor of Enbridge shutting down that pipeline. The governor's ordered Line 5 to shut down. That's true, but Enbridge says Line 5 is safe, and it only wants to make it safer. The company plans to build a new replacement segment in a tunnel underneath the straits, making it virtually impossible to spill into the straits. Enbridge originally estimated it would cost half a billion dollars, But those costs are rising, and some say it could be closer to $2 billion or even more. Yeah, and the critics just don't understand why Enbridge would spend so much money when fossil fuels such as oil and natural gas liquids are being phased out. Those critics say with renewable energy becoming less expensive and more common, spending that kind of money on a tunnel makes no sense to them. Well, think about it. Automakers plan to stop making gas-powered cars. In nearly every sector, from business to government to residential building, people are looking to renewable energy. Kate Madigan is at the Michigan Climate Action Network. She says already some of the big money people are simply getting out of fossil fuel. The largest investors on Wall Street are moving away from fossil fuels. BlackRock, which is the biggest investor in the world, they announced that they are going to be moving away from risky fossil fuel projects. Enbridge Energy sees things from a completely different perspective. Mike Fernandez is a senior VP with the pipeline company, and he says studies suggest the demand for fossil fuels is not going away anytime soon. They showed demand continuing for fossil fuels, even as we see more and more renewables coming on board. Fernandez says you've got to remember most of the cars and trucks on the road today will still need gas or diesel for several more years. Airlines will still need jet fuel. And 90% of all plastics come from oil and natural gas. The reality is we're going to have uh, fossil fuel to some extent in our lives for many more decades. And that kind of prediction makes investment analysts like Enbridge, even if it does spend a billion dollars on a tunnel or more. The people who look into investing in companies see Enbridge as a good financial investment. We talked with Andy Pusateri, an analyst at the brokerage firm Edward Jones. 
He said Enbridge gets high marks because it's not as vulnerable to the ups and downs of crude oil prices. For the most part, Enbridge isn't even buying and selling oil. They just get paid to pipe it from Western Canada to refineries in the Great Lakes region and on to Montreal. So they are earning a fee on having available capacity for people to send products through those lines. And, Pusateri told us, Enbridge has long-term contracts for Line 5. They're ensuring that not only are they recouping the money they're paying for it, I think what they're more interested in is earning a return on that investment for years to come that's far above what they're paying for that line. So at least for now, the economics work out for Enbridge. Well, for a while anyway. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Lester. Joining us now is Beth Wallace with the National Wildlife Federation. She's an expert on fossil fuel pipelines. You've done some research on Enbridge Line 5. We've heard about some of the disastrous scenarios of a major oil spill in the Straits of Mackinac and how oil might wash up on Lake Michigan and Lake Huron shores for many, many miles. But let's scale it back a bit. If Line 5 started spilling oil, what's the best case scenario we can expect? Uh, It would take Enbridge at a minimum about five minutes to shut down line five and all of that product within the the dual pipelines has the potential to be released if if the lines are completely severed but both of them are cut are ruptured correct you know the the absolute worst case scenario would be under a million gallons released if they can shut down the pipelines immediately but it, it creeps up to that million gallon mark that's a lot that's as big as the spill at marshall on line six Let's assume something else. Let's say either Enbridge's tunnel under the Straits is approved and it puts Line 5 in that or that it somehow reroutes or just simply shuts down that section of Line 5. Those twin 20-inch pipelines are still on the bottom of the Straits. How do you go about decommissioning a crude oil and liquid natural gases pipeline like that? Enbridge has history in this. They decommissioned Line 6B after they rebuilt it and doubled the capacity. They rebuilt right next to that pipeline that ruptured in 2010, a brand new one, 36 inches. And when they decommissioned the old Line 6B, their strategy was to purge out the product. They used this pig machine. Um, It's a circular machine that has a bunch of scrubbers on it. And they they basically push that machine through the pipeline. They clean it out. It's called a pig machine because it squeals as it, it squeals, works, right? Yes. Yeah. It sounds like a very loud pig uh, when it runs through. And then they can fill it with an inert gas, which is what they did with Line 6B. Sometimes they'll cap the pipeline in certain locations and they disconnect it from some of the stations. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that a decommissioned pipeline is much different than a pipeline that's been abandoned. And by federal regulation, you still have to maintain that pipeline and ensure that it it is not failing and especially creating problems to the natural environment. Rather than deconstruct that and scrap that metal, they basically leave it in place, whether it's above ground, underground, underwater, and then they have to just monitor it and make sure it doesn't do what? That it doesn't have any types of major problems to it, dense cracks, the types of anomalies that you might see on a normal pipeline. They still have to maintain it to a certain integrity uh, because oftentimes, frankly, industry will put those pipelines back into service. It's still very much up in the air in what Emerge will be doing in this particular situation or what the state may require through perhaps a court mandate. 
Beth Wallace is with the National Wildlife Federation. Thanks for explaining decommissioning to us. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. Thank you for having me on. Coming up next, we'll hear about the effects of climate change on the Great Lakes. You are listening to a special from The Environment Report at Michigan Radio, Great Lakes in Peril. I'm Lester Graham. We've looked at how invasive species have transformed the ecology of the Great Lakes and some of the ways we are polluting the lakes. Now we're going to look at the effects of climate change. The Great Lakes are part of this larger system of inland lakes and rivers throughout the region. The effects of climate change are in some ways more apparent in the streams and small lakes. This past winter, I met up with some people who were concerned enough about what's going on that they braved the cold for a day to volunteer. It was freezing, and Larry Shear was wading in a creek. He dipped a fine mesh net into the water to capture the sediment he'd been stirring up with his boots. He dumped the contents into a tray that Jenny Yem was holding out from the bank of the creek. She and her nine-year-old son were sorting through the organic matter with tweezers looking for a certain kind of insect. Could you take a look at this tray? Because I think I see some stoneflies. But his eyesight's a lot better than mine. (laughs) Citizen scientists like these do this kind of work to help determine the health of streams and rivers. Daniel Brown is the watershed planner for the Huron River Watershed Council, which organized this effort. Fundamentally, stoneflies, other insects, are really good early warning systems when something is wrong with a stream or a creek. While Brown is the watershed's planner, he's also a climatologist. In many cases, climate change amplifies existing stressors. For instance, we've been seeing heavy rainstorms more often. Dana Infante is an assistant director for natural resources at Michigan State University Ag Bio Research. Intense storm events lead to intensive flooding. There's a whole bunch of effects that that these large floods can have on the ecology of river systems. She says a big storm can wash away habitat and aquatic life. It can change when fish spawn. It can change when insects emerge. Timing is everything in nature because those bugs are food for fish and frogs at different stages in life. And birds migrating north count on some of those bugs emerging. If an intense storm happens in the summer, there are other problems. In the summer, you've got an asphalt parking lot that is a couple hundred degrees and suddenly you get a, a flash rainstorm. Jen Michael Hessenauer is with the Michigan Department of Natural Resources. That water hits that parking lot, it, it warms up very quickly, and then bam, it's in, in the stream real quick. That warmed up water stresses aquatic life. Streams have already been warming because of the gradual increase in air temperatures caused by climate change. Hessenauer says that's exacerbated by the loss of trees along some creeks and rivers. You lose that, you suddenly have sun baking down on the water. That can increase the temperature quite a bit, and, and that stresses aquatic life. Michigan State University's Dana Infante says forested areas also slow the rush of water. If you had a river in a forested landscape, it's likely that more water would seep into the groundwater table and be delivered slowly and more regularly to the river network. The same kind of things are happening in inland lakes, and that's having a more obvious effect. The shorelines of the Watkins Lake State Park and County Preserve are off-limits for much of the year. That's because the park is a refuge for migrating birds. But in wintertime, if it's cold enough, you can go ice fishing. Uh, I got a couple fish I got in What, what are you catching out here? Uh, perch and some bluegill. Mike Davis and his buddy say they love ice fishing. He says, though, he's seen changes over the years. It seems like uh, when I was younger, we used to get like a foot of ice, and then now it's like we're down to four inches. Experts say that's a trend that's happening across the Great Lakes region. 
Joe Noner with the Michigan Department of Natural Resources says over the decades, the decrease in the amount of ice on inland lakes is substantial. For example, Gull Lake over in Barrie and Kalamazoo counties, we've lost about 22 days of ice in a typical year since the 1920s. But less ice cover is just one symptom of larger changes caused by climate change. So we're seeing shorter ice periods. We're seeing warming summer surface water temperatures. So lakes are getting warmer. And then we're seeing changes in fish communities. Cool water fish, such as walleye, are struggling in some inland lakes. Jordan Reed with the U.S. Geological Survey says walleye might disappear from some lakes, but bass might thrive in the warmer water. It might be viable to just accept the reality of a warmer lake and potentially start talking to uh, young kids when they're fishing about how much fun it is to reel in a bass as opposed to you know continuing to go after walleye. Reed says the bodies of water that can be protected should be. Planting trees along rivers and lakes, putting buffers between parking lots and bodies of water, and just recognizing that we need to protect what we can while we can. Some cities are doing exactly that. The Joe Taylor Park is tucked into a small neighborhood in Grand Rapids. The buildings have colorful murals, there's a splash pad for hot summer days, but you can't see the really interesting stuff. Below ground, there's 270,000 gallons worth of water storage. When a rainstorm comes along, the water from the surrounding neighborhoods ends up there. It's at the bottom of the hill, so it can take in 40 acres of urban runoff. Carrie Rivette is the wastewater and stormwater maintenance superintendent for the city of Grand Rapids. The park's underground storage holds the water to give it time to soak into the earth. I like to say we're mimicking Mother Nature. We're soaking the water in close to where it lands, getting it to the groundwater slowly, cleaning it up before it gets to the river, and then slowly trickling into into the river so we don't have problems downstream. Grand Rapids is thinking about ways to capture stormwater runoff in every construction project. For example, if a road needs to be resurfaced where there's street parking, Grand Rapids uses permeable concrete to allow rainwater to soak through it and into the ground. Allison Wosky-Sutter is the Sustainability and Performance Management Officer for Grand Rapids. She says the city got a wake-up call a few years ago when there was a big flood. When that happened in 2013 and we had commercial buildings downtown that were shut down and had very large claims, basements flooding and just a lot of damage, right? That's still pretty fresh, even though it feels like it was almost 10 years ago. Since then, Grand Rapids is looking at more green space, parks and other ways throughout the city to slow the runoff. It's difficult to measure, but Grand Rapids estimates it's diverting a few million gallons of water into the ground that otherwise would go into pipes rushing to the river. Grand Rapids leaders feel they've got a long way to go, but they're already way ahead of most municipalities. We need to start thinking about this because many cities have not even had that conversation yet. Maria Lemos is a co-director of the Great Lakes Integrated Sciences and Assessments. That's a collaboration between the University of Michigan and Michigan State University. It helps cities plan for a future in which there's more stormwater runoff because of climate change. She says until now, cities have been looking to the past to determine how to handle the water. So they have a historical data of the worst things that have happened to the city. And depending on how much resources you have, you scope your project based on that experience. But when your future means even more intense storms and higher precipitation, that's not going to work. You can't really know exactly how much bigger your stormwater pipes need to be. And if you overbuild, it can be very expensive. 
Lemo says her group has some tools to help guide cities. A good number of forward-thinking communities are working on the problem, but others are relying on the same approaches they've used in the past. I think a lot of municipalities are trying to build their way out of this with gray infrastructure. Mike Schreiberg is the regional executive director of the National Wildlife Federation's Great Lakes Regional Center. You know, so continually bigger pipes. And one, that's an extraordinarily expensive way of doing it. Two, you're just not going to be able to keep building out that way. And that's why our our emphasis has been on the green infrastructure side. Which he says beats tearing up streets for weeks or months for new pipes and the expense that goes with that. When you go with the green infrastructure, when you go with wetlands, when you go with rain gardens at homes, you actually get, you know, benefits for wildlife habitat, you know, parks, all these different things. And no one is likely to complain about more parks. This is not the end of big concrete pipes handling stormwater. That will still be a necessary expense in some places. But more green spaces and using materials for parking lots that allow the rainwater to soak into the earth can go a long way in reducing the impact of flooding caused by climate change. On a larger scale, restoring wetlands for wildlife refuges also helps. Callie Rush is a regional biologist for Ducks Unlimited. She's been helping restore a wetland area at the Shiawassee National Wildlife Refuge near Saginaw. She says Michigan has lost a lot of its wetlands due to first timber harvesting and then farming. There was wetlands around Saginaw Bay where we are here, you know, that stretched maybe over 10 counties. Now there's only a fraction of those wetlands remaining. So water has no place to go when there's a big rain, and we're seeing more big rains. We need to mimic the natural fluctuations of the wetlands, which allows us to raise or lower water levels um, and promote that native vegetation response, which then provides the wildlife habitat, provides for flood storage, um, cleans the water, and cleans the air. And those things help in a lot more ways than the obvious. Wetlands filter pollutants, farm chemicals, and other bad stuff. The wildlife habitat serves more than just ducks, but also egrets, great blue herons, otters, eagles, and as a place for some kinds of fish to reproduce. But if you never hunt ducks or take hikes to see birds or fish, Rush says you still can benefit. Wetlands can mean the difference in whether sewer systems back up into your basement or that nearby creek rises to your doorstep. The goal in the future would be to better prepare for these larger storms and to have more of these, you know, wildlife refuge areas, more of these wetlands on the landscape to be able to uptake more of those floods and really um, lessen the, the impact on people. It also lessens the impacts on the Great Lakes. Still, the larger issue of climate change is warmer air. Lake Erie is the shallowest of the Great Lakes. The most recent national climate assessment predicts a warmer lake, less winter ice cover, more runoff from farms and cities due to intense storms, leading to more harmful algal blooms and larger dead zones in the lake. But even the biggest and deepest of the Great Lakes is affected. Lake Superior's surface temperature has been going up, but in wild fluctuations. The average wind speeds have been increasing by 5% each decade since 1980, and Superior has been pounded by three 500-year to 1,000-year storm events in the past eight years. If it's not climate change, what is it? Peter Annan extensively documented the effects of climate change in his recently revised book, Great Lakes Water Wars. I mean, we have the, you know, the largest lake in the world by surface area is not just seeing one extreme event. It's seeing a series of scientifically documented extreme events that are creating a pattern that is changing the relationship that human beings are having with the Great Lakes that they love. 
Right now, people are talking about historically high lake levels. Just a few years ago, they were talking about historic lows. The two most significant things that affect water levels are precipitation and evaporation. In 1998, Lake Superior warmed up about 2 degrees Celsius. That's a little over 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And it stayed warm for more than 15 years. That meant high evaporation and water levels dropped. Then things swung in the other direction. Drew Gronewald is a hydrologist at the University of Michigan School of Environment and Sustainability. In 2014, there was what we call in the media the polar vortex, and lake temperatures went down by an order of one to two degrees Celsius, and all of a sudden, evaporation rates were low. So those changes in temperatures that you're talking about, they are of a big magnitude, and they have a huge impact on the hydrology and the physics of the lakes. Now, the Great Lakes water levels have always gone up and down, but Peter Annan says this is not the same. What's different now is that we're seeing an increase in extremes, an increase in higher highs, lower lows, the speed with which we're rising, the speed with which we're falling. We're breaking records all over the place. And lake levels are not the only problem. We talked about those invasive mussels earlier, the zebras and quaggas. If Lake Superior warms up, those mussels and other invasives could spread further in some parts of Lake Superior. Already for a couple of decades, whitefish populations have dropped. That's our main fish species in Anishinaabe culture. That is the fish species that is most important throughout our creation history. That's Brad Sillett. He's the lead fisheries biologist for the Sioux Tribe of Chippewa Indians in Sault Ste. Marie. He's worried about invasive species further damaging cold water fish, such as whitefish. He's also concerned about those volatile lake levels we talked about earlier. When you start getting these really drastic up and down water levels, you start seeing a lot more of those negative impacts to the uh, hatching of those eggs. That's because whitefish spawn in rocky coastal areas. Usually, the thick ice protects the fish eggs from rough winter storms. But fluctuation in water levels and warmer temperatures mean some years, instead of solid ice, there are broken pieces of ice crashing against the shore, damaging fish eggs and further reducing whitefish reproduction. Sillett says that's why Native American fisheries experts are trying to figure out what they can do to save the whitefish. Right now, Sioux Tribe is doing some experimental whitefish rearing. There's another tribe doing it also. We are seeing what it would take to raise whitefish to see if we can potentially offset any changes to climate change or invasive species that are happening, at least in our area of the Great Lakes. This is just one struggle of many across the Great Lakes. Despite all the concerns about the impacts of climate change, this region is a lot better off than some other places in the U.S., For the past three decades, Michigan and other states have been losing population to the Sun Belt states such as Arizona, Texas, and Florida. That's mostly due to jobs and, of course, the promise of sunny weather. But years-long droughts in some places, wildfires in others, and hurricanes along the Atlantic and Gulf coasts are leading some to reconsider where they call home. That includes Vincent Ayula and Debbie Anderson. The couple moved to Michigan from Felsmere, Florida, 12 miles off the Atlantic coast, in 2019. I talked to them then about whether climate change affected their decision to move to the Midwest. When we first moved to our place in Felsmere, the place that we uh, bought didn't have hurricane shutters, and they, they were saying, oh, you don't need hurricane shutters. Well, within the year, two hurricanes hit right where we live, back to back within a couple weeks of each other. You know, the fact that they didn't have hurricanes before very often, and now we're seeing more, 
kind of convinced us that maybe it's time to get out of Florida and move somewhere else. Lately, there seems like one storm after another is something that's unprecedented. Plus, there's other factors. The, the water table down the aquifer is getting affected by encroaching seawater as the seas rise. I kind of was thinking about it. I wanted to be ahead of the curve before people started realizing this was going on and before all the equity we had in our property and our home just vanished because I feel like that's going to happen. So why Michigan? Well, the main reason is my sister lives here. And just coincidentally, I was kind of reading articles about climate change and some of the articles I read pointed out the Great Lakes might be a desired place to live in case climate change really took effect and the coast became a place you wouldn't want to live because there is that supply of fresh water. I mean, there is the flip side where I guess I hear that potentially climate change could cause more severe winters. I was trying to convince all my friends down in Florida to come <laughs> up and move here so we could all be together again, but nobody seems too interested in leaving Florida because of the winters. There were some people that were kind of climate denialists, very few. They were like, well, yeah. what are you, crazy? Yeah. This is not really happening. And You know, that's become... Uh, a very politicized issue. Mm-hmm. Um, admitting climate change is happening is one thing. Yeah, whether indicating it's that, right. you know, whether it's it's human cost or mm-hmm. not is, is something completely different. Do you know people who would think that you were foolish for making this move? Well, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I know yeah. a few. Yeah, I, I few. do too. Yeah. Yeah. What do they say? Well, they're climate deniers, basically. Yeah, our, yeah. our neighbors were like, you know, oh, it's yeah. just a cycle. It gets right. like this all the time. You just don't remember how bad it was before. Mm-hmm. There's so many people who still deny that it's actually even happening. Like you said, you know, the data is clear that it is. It's really the question is whether that's man-made. I think that's pretty much settled, too. But, you know, if you want to believe 97% of the climate scientists, a lot of it, like you said, is very political and it's very ideologic. They start with that ideology and then lawyer their way to, well, you know, the, it's only 97% of the scientists. And I could show this one here that says and they'll latch on to that. And that's just human psychology. So yeah. That's Vincent Ayula and Debbie Anderson. You know, some Great Lakes cities are starting to plan for population growth due to climate change. My partners in this coverage have been writing about that climate migration, and they explore the question, are we ready? You can find all their stories and mine at michiganradio.org. Just search for Great Lakes News Collaborative. The Great Lakes News Collaborative includes Bridge Michigan, Circle of Blue, Great Lakes Now at Detroit Public Television, and Michigan Radio. We work together to bring audiences news and information about the environmental challenges in the Great Lakes region. This independent journalism is supported by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. Special thanks to Kelly House at Bridge Michigan, who co-reported Line 5 coverage with me. My editor was Sarah Hewlett. She always makes my work so much better. Thank you, Sarah. This has been a production of the Environment Report from Michigan Radio.